From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Council of Korean Americans in Washington, D.C. This is Abraham Kim with the Korean American Perspectives Podcast. With the COVID-19 pandemic crisis forcing people to stay at home and stop attending big events, one of the industries that has been hardest hit is the performing arts community. Stages and concert halls are all closed, and many artists and performers find themselves unemployed and struggling. Although unable to attract actual attendees, some performing arts centers are trying to find creative ways to keep connected with their audience through virtual means, such as New York's Lincoln Center is streaming celebrated operas, or the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco showing plays online. We are fortunate to have my guest, Chil Kong, Artistic Director at the Adventure Theater MTC in Maryland to give us an inside view of how the performing arts world is facing the challenges ahead. Chill serves as the only Korean-American artistic director of a major theater company in the United States. Fortunately for the theater, Chill came from a long and award-winning career of artistic directorship in major theater companies in Boston, San Diego, Seattle, and Los Angeles, as well as acting and directing in TV and film. So working in the digital format and steering through tough times are not new to him. However, still adapting performances to do online platforms like Zoom or Facebook Live is still tough. These solutions will always fall short of live shows. In my discussion with Chill, we talk about the hard choices the art community and its leaders will have to make in this COVID-19 world. Chill and I also talk more broadly about the societal stresses of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially the disturbing rise of Asian American sentiment the growing reports of violence against this community, and what he feels needs to be done to combat this horrific trend. Plus, we take a step back and reflect on his long career in the performance and entertainment industries, and discuss about important issues such as the progress made in Asian American representation in TV and film, and the mixed impact of the Parasite film sweeping the Oscars will likely have on the entertainment industry for Asian Americans. We hope you enjoy this honest and engaging conversation with Chil Kong about his life, his career, and the tumultuous COVID-19 world. Well, welcome everyone. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm the Executive Director at the Council of Korean Americans, and I'm here with my friend Chil Kong. Uh, Chil, welcome to the Korean American Perspectives. Thank you. Excited to be here. Uh, let's start off. I want to ask you about your name. Chill. <laughs> is that a derivative of a Korean name? It it actually is. It's my full name is uh, is Gong Pyeong Chil. So it's the 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 Chil. You know, no one could say that properly here. Mm-hmm. Even in the way it was translated at immigration, it was translated with an O. So I was called Chol for a lot, and that was not correct. The closer mm-hmm. pronunciation is Chil. So. I just stuck with chill and it, and it stuck. I see. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I saw a quote in one of the interviews that you did with uh, one of the newspapers, and it's you were quoted as saying, uh, as a kid growing up in Woodbridge, Virginia, I often had to explain my existence, always the other. I found myself trying to understand my place in the diverse tapestry of the American experience. And it went on to say you left Virginia to become an artist later, but it sounded like you were struggling through your younger years just trying to find yourself in this community. I think we need to remind, especially our immigrant families, when they first come here, because the whole idea when they first come here is just, just to survive, right? Just so they can get food on the table. But part of survival is mental health. And I think, you know, Asians are really terrible, terrible examples of, how, of avoidance of that. Uh, and one of the things that I wasn't able to grapple with was who I was uh, because I didn't necessarily fit in here. Mm-hmm. And my parents never talked about their past. And they forget that, that in talking about your past, you ground your children into something that is stronger than where they are or who people are telling them they are. And, uh, and I think it is actually crucial for parents who, are, you know, Asian Americans in particular, that you start talking about your roots and the, and the stories that brought you here. Um, because if you don't, someone else will tell your kids their history. They will other them. They will put them in other places. They will, you know, they'll call a Korean a Chinese or a chink or whatever it is and, and stigmatize them in a way that's not really their own. And it's hard to fig- like understand who you are if you don't even know who your past is, right? And I think that's why it's really important that parents now who are having kids and uh, who are the, you know, the second generation or the 1.5 bringing on the second or third generation, you have to talk about your past. And you have to try to get your parents who are their grandparents now to talk about their past so, that, so you can anchor them in something that's bigger than who they are. Because it is a it is it is something that will protect them as they get older. Because people can call you names, but if you know where you come from, those names don't have the same impact. If you don't know where you come from, if you don't know your history, then it's easier to take on these name callings because you have no defense against it. Right. You have no you have no anchor or foundation in which you know <laughs> yeah. your true identity. Yeah. Yeah, and that's you know, you don't have to give them the entire life but you have to give them something they can hold on to. And, and I think that's the thing that, that that's a treasure that we do not appreciate as a community. Uh, we're starting to do it now a little bit better, but, you know, uh, and I don't mean just like taking traditional folk dances. That's, that's not it. You got to talk about these stories and, and, and you got to talk about them in, in the way of, you know, that even if there was struggle that you have overcome them, and have pride in who you are and where you came from. Because mm. that gift, that gift is undeniable because it gives children a foundation that allows them to run faster. Yeah. You know, it's like running in muddy water. If you don't know who you are, then you're just constantly running in quicksand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the more assertive you are in your position in the world, the easier it is to run on solid ground, right? So is college where you found your calling to be a performer? Because I know you majored in marketing and psychology, but you also did a lot of uh, performing arts um, type of uh, extracurricular activities. Is, this, is that where you found your calling? Yeah, I mean, I, I was part of a group called the New Virginians, and it was a 
basically like the Donnie Marie Osmond show. So we traveled to a lot of that. Uh, we would be sponsored by some like Rotary Club or some Lions Club or something like that. And we do a show for them. And uh, we were treated like a sports team. So you have to keep your grades and, and so that you can travel and do all these shows. You know, I got to learn songs and, and perform. And I loved doing it, but, you know, I was still not sure exactly what I want to do with my life. It wasn't really until I saw a musical Les Mis for the first time, which was at, in Roanoke, actually, which is not far from Virginia Tech, where I was like, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. But I also understood that, like, I needed more training. So, you know, after I graduated Virginia Tech, I realized that I need to go back to school. So take us from there to your career um, as a performing artist. How did, how did that evolve over time after leaving your college years? Well, um, um, after graduation at Virginia Tech, what is it? The uh, 90s recession was, was high mm-hmm. at the time. And I happened to be fortunate enough to get a job immediately. Like I was actually working um, at uh, a couple of agencies in Richmond, Virginia. Um, you know, this is all after seeing Les Mis and, you know, struggling with this whole thing. Um, and, um, and then had a really intense argument with my parents about my future. Mm. And I had uh, kind of blazingly, <laughs> with all the confidence of, of, uh, of an entitled uh, boy of Korean heritage, you know, um, I was just, I just auditioned for places, assuming that I'd get in. And I did, I got in. And the Boston Servitor offered me a full ride. So I, was, I let my parents know and they just freaked them out because they just, that's not what they had conceived of my life to be. So after you finished at the Boston Conservatory, correct? That's where you went? Yes, uh, I didn't graduate. So let me be clear. The, uh, literally, and I know this is going to make a lot of people mad. <laughs> um, I was one semester away and actually honestly one class away from being finished. Mm. Um, but uh, they had a rule um, that you couldn't perform. This is back then. They can now. Uh, they just changed it like two years ago. But at the time, you couldn't perform outside the college um, while you're at the university. And, uh, and I had gone almost a whole year doing that until uh, you know, one of the big reviewers reviewed the show that I was in, and my name was all over the place. And the dean called me into the office and was like, and this is, I kid you not, like I, it was a month away from graduation. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, he told me I had to leave the show. And I said, no. So I, you know, left in a huff um, uh, and <laughs> I left the university and didn't look back. Uh, and sadly, it's like, like, it is one of the things that I wish I would have finished. But me leaving was the trickle effect of all these other things that happened. I was able to, you know, it was, it, it allowed me to go to San Diego, which got me to, you know, I got a job at San Diego Repertory Theater. And then that got me to my first artistic director position where I was the youngest artistic director. Like, you know, I was 28 and I was the leader of a fairly large institution. So it was like, you know, what is the, what's happening? So. <laughs> yeah. By this time, did your parents come to accept your career path or is, or were they still, um, well, uh, what's, what's funny is they didn't understand what I was doing. And honestly, I didn't know how to explain to them because the, the, what a director does is really not a, there is now, like what, what Koreans use for the term didn't really exist back then. 
And, and so I just thought I'm trying to explain what I did. And then my, the big announcement of me being the artistic director up in uh, Seattle uh, hit. And, and then the Korean newspapers, uh, you know, got, you know, put it out in the newspapers and I just got a copy and I didn't even think about it. I just folded it up and mailed it to my mom. And my mom, when she got it, called me crying because she finally understood what I did, you know, because it was in her language. You know what I mean? (laughs) The article explained about my history and was just what lovingly talked about me as a leader of the community. And so it, it, it put me in a position of, Oh, uh, uh, this has some respect to it. And, uh, and then yet again, she still would turn around and go, well, are you eating? You know, Um, it, it wasn't until later that I realized what she really meant was that she just wanted to make sure our, that was her way of saying, I love you. And are you okay? But back then it used to just really be like, yes, I'm eating. I'm, I'm not a poor artist. Like I actually do very well. <laughs> uh, you know, I, as you get older, you start understanding your parents more because you are your parent. Like that's who you become, you become your parents. So there are, you know, you often hear horror stories about actors, you know, it's just a difficult period for them um, and just trying to make it. And um, I mean, what would you recommend or what will be your words of wisdom for a a struggling actor trying to break in, especially an uh, Asian American actor trying to break in? Well, this is a weird time um, uh, for film and TV and for Asians. Um, You know, at their, at the height of racism that's building around COVID-19, we also have a lot of power in Hollywood. Um, We have a lot of uh, Asian and Asian Pacific uh, directors and actors who have um, taken up the mantle of producers and studio heads. And so they transitioned to, and thank God, fully embraced the power of their name, you know, because Daniel Day Kim was a friend of mine and he, he was part of the same circle of people who came up through the ranks of Lodestone. Um, and he's, you know, an amazing success as an actor, but he's parlayed that into running his own film company and TV company. And so he's got like multiple shows and pitches. And, and so he's taken the power over um, so that it's not just him um, having to go out to become an actor somewhere. He's now choosing and selecting stories that he wants to tell. Um, another prime example of a, of a person who came through Lodestone is Angela Kang. And she was a playwright that started with us. And now she is the, the, um, uh, the producing executive producer of Walking Dead. She's the showrunner of the Walking Dead franchise that's up right now. And she's a remarkable writer that, that we just were lucky enough to tap into. And so Lodestone was an intrinsic part of the history and growth of Asian and Asian Pacific Islanders that came through the ranks in Hollywood. So, you know, these are amazing, powerful people who, who, uh, who switched over from just performing into, uh, into other parts. Now, with that in mind, um, as an API performer, uh, my thing with them is that there's multiple ways to be an actor now, uh, in, including this time where you have to be isolated. Um, so get innovative and try to tell a story. Um, the second part to that is that own your story, like figure out what you want to tell and really tell it. Um, uh, because there's prime examples of it, like Justin Chan. Um, he's, he's an amazing actor and I knew him when he was younger, but he didn't really, uh, take hold of his career until he started creating his own material. Mm -hmm. And it just started with him doing YouTube stuff. 
literally just posting silly things and shorts and whatever online. And that evolved and he became a better storyteller into a movie like Gook, which is a powerful movie about race relations and, uh, and what happened during the, the LA riots. If you get a chance to see it, see, see Gook from Justin Chan. Yeah, like I, you can see a really good storyteller there. But he started out as, a, as, a, as an actor, as a performer, and, you, and we all forget that. You know, he's still making a very good career as an actor, but he started to really take ownership of the, story, of the stories he wanted to tell. And I say that because if you don't do that for yourself, someone else will make the decision for you. And it is better for you to try to tell your stories now before they take them away from you than later when you don't even get a chance to do it because you've been kind of cornered into a type of role that you didn't anticipate. That's one. The second part is, you know, um, train. Uh, you know, if you really think that you can get up from doing nothing and recording yourself doing silly crap uh, and becoming a star, then you're not doing approaching this in the right way. Uh, and, and I hate to tell these people, it's like, sadly, it's part of what your parents are telling you in the beginning is correct that you need to get the the training you have to study you have to study um and acting takes a really concentrated study it's not just you getting on and memorizing lines you got to really get good at your craft um you know uh, part of the reason why i was so successful early on as a performer was because i was one of the few that was trained um in the in the new england area so i was able to pay back all my college debt my undergraduate college debt in the first two years because I was working constantly as an actor. And, but that's because I was trained. You know, I knew what to expect. I, I, you know, I, I, my, my approach to the craft was very specific. So, you know, those are the two big points that I would say to act, to want to be actors and performers is uh, figure out who, what kind of stories you want to tell and just tell it, get it out there and train. Do you have role models? Um, you know, I was lucky that I actually got to meet a few of my role models. Um, Sun Teko was a, was, I, was a, I was a really big fan of his. You know, he was one of the first Korean um, actors that really made it in the industry. Uh, but I also knew him about him in theater. Uh, he, he became really well known for his um, Iago, his role uh, at, uh, at Yale's um, theater in Othello. So he had, he'd played the role of Iago in Othello and he became regionally well-known because of that. And it was like a lightning rod moment uh, of, of his performance. And so um, my first show that I did out of the gate as a professional actor uh, was The Woman Warrior and he was playing the father. And so I got to meet him and he was, he was so gracious. And the first thing he said to me was, uh, essentially was, you can do this. And so he was the first Korean man who told me that I'm in the right place. And so he gave me an incredible gift. And that's, you know, to, to the, the okay to do, to be in this industry. Yeah, I know. It sounds like in, in the performing arts field, um, a mentor, a role model, a, a wise, <laughs> a yeah. wise person who traveled the path ahead of you is, is really an important part of your own success and development as a, as a, as an artist. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing I would tell the, the kids nowadays is that there's, you're, you're not the first one, <laughs> you know, it's like, 
relax. I, I'm glad you think you're, you're the first one, but you're not. There's a lot of other people who came before you. Uh, even, you know, there was even people before, uh, before Suntech. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people before you, so learn from them. Uh, I know they're old and I, I know that they're, <laughs> you know, they're the old generation. They kind of look like your parents and I know you had a hard time with them, but listen to these people who are, who are ahead of you. You know, there are things that you can learn from them. If nothing else, just to hear their experiences so that you can understand possible pitfalls. You know, uh, it's, it's really interesting to watch all these kids nowadays who are gung-ho and talk about things as if, as if they live in a vacuum. And, I'm, and I always have to be the old guy in the room to go, okay, relax. <laughs> <laughs> so if, in your opinion, has the, has the performing arts TV film field, has it gotten better in terms of diversity and inclusion from your, over the course of your career? Um, yes. And I, honestly, the, the funny thing is that there was always performers you know, uh, I would say there's more performers nowadays, but there were, but there were always performers who wanted to be in front of the camera, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest shift has been on the other side. Uh, the biggest shift is the people who are deciding who isn't going to be in front of the camera, uh, and and not just directors, but producers and executives. In uh, uh, there are more of us, and because we're in the room, um, you know, with with and the writers who are writing the stories and all that stuff, because they're in the room they include us in these storylines or become the focus of our storylines because they've made an active choice to do that. That is probably the, the clearest difference in now than it was back then. Um, so yes, there's been a dramatic shift. Um, however, uh, what's the, the, we still have this constant push-pull within our own community and then inter-race communities and the big push pull no matter what because we're you know the api community is always this wave of immigrants um that that uh that we still have somebody who is a first generation and then their kid is second generation that story is always there and so that push pull between those two generations is a constant battle and so when i see that dynamic happening in front of me i I, you know i I can look at it go i know exactly what's gonna happen (laughs) So, uh, yes, there's change, but I think, oddly enough, the difficult battle still is within our community, right? Because, uh, like, I would even say to, or just like even Council of Community Americans, like, there's, there's what, two executives from entertainment, you know, it, that are part of the, the council? Uh, and we're the ones that tell your story. So you got to start thinking about including us. Cause if you don't like, who's going to talk about you guys, you know, who's going to be, cause who's going to champion these things? Um, because we, we forget that our, our identity isn't made by uh, the heroes that are next door neighbor. You know what I mean? Like are in the offices. That's not the heroes that we look at. We always look at heroes in our entertainment world. And we look at the stories that are out there in the ether and that's presented in Netflix and Amazon and on TV and on movies. Um, and if we don't grab, and if we don't understand that we have to support the artists that are going through that and telling our stories, then, then we're going to be constantly trying to reinvent ourselves with people who are fighting us the entire time. <laughs> and, 
it is an unhealthy relationship that we have with our artists. How, so, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, how what? No, I, I was I'm just was going to ask how significant or how much of a ripple effect did it did it cause uh, the fact that you know the recent Oscars, for example, the Academy Awards, you know, Parasite winning Best Picture, was that seen as a a very significant um, did it have a significant impact in the industry, you think, for providing more opportunities or possible opportunities in the long-term future? Or do you, is that, was that well, your assessment? Here's this weird, so you got to think of this in two tracks, right? There's the industry itself and then there's the community, right? And in the industry, what's happening is because more people are making decisions, there are more uh, people of color and Asian, in particular Asians who are deciding who should win or who shouldn't. Um, that it, it's, it's giving more credence to these alternative storylines that are popping up. Uh, so that no one, you know, because everyone's getting tired of, of this, uh, this very white dynamic storyline. You know, the white uh, straight male storyline isn't the majority anymore. And we're looking for alternative storylines that may be different. Entertainment is fluid. They, in fact, I would say film and TV has become the fastest response to the way culture and, and, uh, and mainstream culture is starting to what they want. Now, the, the other track is the Asian and, and in particular Korean track is that we have a lot of these people who celebrated Parasite but do not celebrate the artists that are in it. That's the problem. You know, it's like they'll say, well, you know, Parasite's great, but you're an actor and you're stupid and you, should never, you shouldn't be doing this. As opposed to, Parasite is great. H how do I help you tell a story like that? Or understand that Parasite's impact within the Hollywood industry um, is actually fairly important. It's a pivot in the industry. So now I, as a community member in Korean culture, in, in the Korean American community, have to figure out how to make sure I support that by Korean Americans. Because Parasite still is very uniquely a Korean movie, mm -hmm. not a Korean American movie. Yes. And so there's a distinction with that. You know, you can be proud of Korea, the homeland, but you exist here. And in existing here, you have to support the stories and the people who are telling the stories here. So what I saw was this interesting, like, you know, wave of pride. And then the next day a dismissal of all the artists that are still here. You know, it's like when you don't include these people in the arts, arts industry as part of the really important infrastructure of, you know, of leaders and of storytellers and, you know, of icons, mm -hmm. uh, it, it filters down. Like if you don't think it's important, Abe, then, you know, of course the lawyer next to you won't either. And I think that, that the only way that we can assure that the storytellers in our community are given the credence to tell the story and then the confidence to be able to tell it boldly and then support it um, that can only happen with our leaders themselves. Like we have to look around and go, okay, how do we make sure that people actually look at us as human beings? And the Jewish community is a prime example of this. When they first got here, they understood that they had to be a part of the cultural fabric of America. 
and they did it by doing musicals. Like think about this, Fiddler on the Roof, people think it's just a musical, but actually was a powerful story of a very Jewish storyline that you had white, straight, Christian people singing the songs. You know, they're singing a Yiddish song. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can change people's perspective and give power to the culture is to present that culture in a way that it becomes an actual fabric, you know, an integrated piece of the American culture. And we can't say that still. We cannot say that there is a piece out there that is, an, that is an, a uniquely American piece. Because that's the other thing, Fit on the Roof was not a Yiddish musical, it was a American musical. But it changed the way people talked about the Jewish community. It also enlightened people about the Jewish community and their plight back in the 1800s that wasn't in their purview until now. Not only did you see a piece of history, but it became a part of the American cultural mainstream. And until you empower Korean American artists to do that, it just will not happen here. And so if you want people to believe that you're part of American culture, you have to create something that is part of American culture. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And support it. But then what I hear after that, I say this usually is like, well, then, you know, find some um, talented artists that'll do that. I'm like, stop. You don't just cherry pick people and all of a sudden become stars. You have to provide the groundwork and the support system. That's the thing is that the, the, what the Jewish community did was a lot of these powerful Jewish families or people who had wealth started going, okay, how do I get people to start talking about us in, in positive ways? It filtered into the, into the family structure. And these, these important people started fun, you know, creating foundations and giving money to arts institutions and, and encouraging um, stories. And, you know, it's, it's when they started creating an infrastructure for, uh, for, for Jewish stories to be told, then of course it flourished. And that's the approach that we have to take here is that if we, if we want to be considered part of the integral part of American culture, you have to make sure that you tell, that you create the artists that tell the stories that make that happen. That's a, that's a, we need to invest in our actors and our directors and our, uh, our producers and all these different people that are, and, and hopefully through building up an army, you some of them will flourish and become the future, you know? Um, yeah. And it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be purely money. It has to be, you have to look at them and you cannot dismiss them because what I see is a lot of these lawyers who spent a lot of years in, and I get it. Like you have earned your degree. But don't turn around and dismiss somebody who has also earned a degree, hopefully, um, who is trying to tell your story that the lawyer, <laughs> don't dismiss their craft. It's, it's that dismissal that is the beginning of the trampling of the seats. That's the thing people forget is that is you just need to give them breath. Go, it, it, if nothing else, change the way you talk about your mm -hmm. artists and, and just applaud them when you can. Mm -hmm. If you don't like it, fine. So, you know, I didn't like it, but hey, I'm glad they're doing it. That's the better approach than what I see is this, you know, the, the dismissal and the disdain that I see from Asian Americans, in particular Korean Americans to Korean artists, is no different than the white racists who looked down at us during COVID. No different. That's the thing people don't understand, is that that look of disdain and dismissal is no different.
than what Koreans do to artists for Korean American artists. I feel like we can spend a couple of hours just talking about these issues. And, um, <laughs> but I, I do want to shift a little bit to bring you to Maryland, <laughs> to your present day role yeah. uh, from yes. California to Maryland to become the artistic director uh, for Adventure Theater, correct? And uh, to yes. work with children and community. And just uh, you, you, you shared with me earlier about the significance of this position of, of, of a Korean American holding this role. Could you share with our audience the significance of you coming? Um, well, uh, I'm probably the best, you know, I, I am the first, as they say. I, I, they're out of the larger, you know, all the, the um, family theater institutions across the country in the United States. I'm the only Korean American ever um, to be an artist director. And I am, from what I understand, I'm the only one of a large institution who is, who is API. So in the field, I'm the only one. Um, and I don't want to be the only one. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but I am the only one right now. So the significance of that, I think it's just, is it, weird that, because uh, I didn't really know when I stepped into the position that, that was the case. For some reason in my head, I just assumed. Because I had been... Sorry, Sorry, was it the significance of this role that brought you to Maryland? Or was, I mean, you were at this kind of almost the epicenter, you were at the epicenter of, you know, film, TV, and you had a very successful career as a, um, mm -hmm. on theater as well. And, and you came, then you move all the way to the East Coast for <laughs> this particular role, which is no doubt a, a very important role. But, um, but, you know, this is not the epicenter, right, of, of, um, Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I was, this was one of those moments of the right place at the right time in the right moment. Uh, because um, I was in New York, I helped run a theater company out there, uh, and realized that because uh, the, the, the roles of, of people who run theaters in New York is a little different than any other place else. And, uh, um, and the position that I, that I held was more of a producer, um, administrative producer role. And it wasn't on as much on the creative side as I'd like it to be. Uh, so it was, a, it was a painful proximity issue. And I realized that, that this, that's not where I wanted to be. That's not what I wanted to do. So I need to make a change. That's one. Um, at the same time, my parents were sick. Uh, so I was spending a lot of time down in Virginia. Um, and, uh, and that summer, this, you know, this past summer, uh, last year, um, I was, I worked on a couple of musicals and both of them, uh, it was, I couldn't bring my son to, uh, one of them was, um, was a, uh, uh, was a musical that had a violent Asian on Asian crime. It was a murder, uh, really beautiful musical, but, but I, you know, <laughs> I didn't want my son to see Asians killing other Asians. And then the other one was, had lots of language and just wasn't appropriate for him. So I thought, I looked around, I was like, why am I doing this? I mean, now, as I was traveling down to be with my parents, this position came up and I was interviewing. And so the entire time I kept thinking, okay, well, I want to, I want to create shows for my son. I'm visiting Virginia a lot to check on my parents and all this crazy stuff is happening. Why am I fighting this? So that's one. 
because um, I was offered other positions in other places, but I, but I decided to come here. Now, this still was the better city of all the positions, right? That, because uh, it would have been Midwest and other places uh, that I was offered positions for. Uh, but it's also still very close to New York and it allows me to do a lot of work up there still. Um, and I still have contacts in, in mm -hmm. LA. So does it impact me in that, you know, it's a sharp turn for my career? Absolutely. But, in, but it, it's one of those moments when you realize because of, you know, my years of theater and digital uh, and film and TV, I am at the right theater dealing with, oddly enough, the right situation with the right, um, uh, with the right skill sets to deal with this distance um, artistry uh, because I do some TV on top of theater. Well, well, let's, right? well, let's talk about that. I think you're referencing the yeah. current situation we're all in with this COVID-19 yeah. pandemic where we're literally in this kind of national shutdown and and you know we read about in the in the media about how it particularly hit the art community uh, where obviously filling theaters and seats and so forth are, are very important and you leading uh, overseeing and managing a theater i, I imagine it's it particularly hit your theater uh, you know in a very hard way and I, i'm if you can share with us how how you're pivoting and how you're trying to use your creativity to i guess really navigate the current uh, storm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's first of all, I, I have a really amazing team of people who are smart and savvy who works with me and, and who, uh, who understand that I'm that I'm pushing about it, I'm trying to do other stuff. And so my my marketing director has to be really quick and savvy and has to has to pivot with me very quickly, oftentimes in a day. Uh, so I'm lucky in that I with the right people who can who can pivot with me. Um, but the the thing is because i have history in digital I, you know and how to use technology um uh, to, to tell stories uh i i'm able to usually like latch onto things differently um uh in ways that other people who, who've done less of this can't uh, including like how we use zoom like we 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 learned very quickly uh, what drives the program and and how to use it and utilize it and how to turn screens off so that it feels more fluid. Um, now, at the core of this still is that is that this is not theater, right? And what I I think what I want to reiterate is that the whole point of all this digital stuff that we're creating isn't to replace theater; it is to supplement it and get people excited about coming back. And I think that's the philosophy that's really making it really interesting for everyone. Uh, you know, uh, from a theater company that has maybe moderate few hits here and there on Facebook and on websites and stuff, like all theaters, we've gone from very small numbers to being one of the top six uh, on Facebook uh, in the past two weeks. So we've been able to pivot very quickly. And that's because, you know, we have, it's a combination of this theater company has been around for almost 70 years. So there's rich history I can pull from. And then a young group of talented kids who are part of our academy that I can tap into for their energy. And then a young, talented admin team that can pivot really quickly with me, uh, who is able to like, for me to go, hey, I'm gonna shoot this really quickly, so put it up. And then they'll turn it around for me really quickly. 
So, it, you know, it's, it is very much the, the right group of people are mixed into the right place and we're making the numbers work. Now, at the end of the day, it still has to result in dollars and it's starting to come through slowly, but we're hitting a lot of the benchmarks uh, numbers wise uh, that I thought would take another like two or three weeks. So we're way ahead of the game right now. So do you feel that the audience is hungry for this kind of content out there? You see like, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber putting his musicals online. You, you hear about, yeah. you know, the Mets putting on their operas and different things online. It, it seems like the entire art community is shifting in this direction. Uh, there must be a demand out there for all of this. Yeah, but and I think the thing is like some of that stuff is, is fine, but it, as long as your approach to it understands the context of the medium that you're presenting it, right? Because these straight lifts that are essentially, you know, video recordings of a theatrical piece, there's a disconnect in what it does. Mm. It, in, in, a, in a strange way, it flattens the artistry. It, it turns it into a two-dimensional form that, that was never intended to be that way. And so what's happening is, yes, it's feeding people's nostalgia, because all those things are nostalgic titles, right? What people aren't able to kind of grapple with is the storytelling that you're trying to create for, uh, for new pieces, right? Uh, to build excitement. And so we're, we're doing a different model in presenting stories that we're going to show this coming season and use this moment to really get people activated about future pieces. So our approach is, is really presenting joy and sneak peeks into the future. And it's resulted in really smart, really interactive, and really fun things. Now, it's all in conjunction with other things, right? And that's, that's where our savvy and, some of, and uh, a lot of people's kind of, I guess, my experience in this uh, digital medium has really helped. Uh, you still need approval from the artist director to do whatever thing. And my thing to everyone was, just put out some joy. Like one of my favorite things that's come out of this is actually my executive director who tells these really terrible dad jokes. And so what we did was, you know, he mentioned that offhand and I said, no, Leon, do them. Cause he does it with such joy that we just present them, we just throw it out there. And what we talk about, and I think what we're focused on is we're presenting bits of joy that is uniquely part of adventure theater. Um, that when you see it, as with all the pieces up, like if we threw all of it up against the wall, you can look at it and go, oh yeah, oh, I see the personality of the company. And that's the approach we're taking, is that uh, we didn't want you to do this, you know, singular monolithic vision of the company. That, that would be the mistake, because then it's harder to pivot. It becomes this just giant Titanic. What you wanted to see is these, all these options that are available for you to, for you to go, here's the quirky personalities. Here, here's the things that makes theater interesting because we're a collection of misfit toys, right? We're a collection of these oddballs and strange people and wonderful storylines and people who didn't necessarily fit in, but then found their joy in this one interesting uh, art form and then put it out there and then allow people to pick up things that they can connect to. You know, this, we have these really cr great stories of individual uh, artists who, who, who talked about what the impact of adventure theater was. And there's really lovely personal stories that have come out of it. It's called Adventure is Me. Like these interesting hashtags that have come out of this mm. uh, that really celebrates the joy. And then you get to see what we are. Yeah. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. And th- so the idea is that that's all to supplement which, what happens when you come here. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, because the worst thing you can do is you see all this stuff and you come to the theater and you're like, oh, this is nothing like I expected. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we still have to be at the core of what we are. Right. But the most important part is that we celebrate all the interesting nuances of who we are. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, you're just you're really showing the, the multifacets and the multi-personalities of your mm-hmm. company and your theater group and, um, and, and connecting with them. Because like you said, everyone, different things speak to different people because we're all different people, right? And, and right. Some, things will, some people will latch on to different things. Um, I, I, I hate to shift this conversation to something that's not very joyful, but certainly something that you've spoken out very publicly about is obviously in this COVID-19 crisis has been this rise in anti-Asian sentiment. Um, and uh, you've, you've, uh, there's been some media reporting uh, of you speaking out on this, but obviously we've seen a lot of media report about the uptick of this. So uh, just some of your thoughts about, about that um, and what's going on around the country. It, it's been disheartening, you know, cause, um, cause we're in a, in a country now where, um, where it is easier to blame someone than it is to try to figure out how to solve a problem. Uh, that they would rather scapegoat and burn someone's effigy than to look and go, all right, let's just fix this. Uh, and we're in a culture of, um, of racism. We just are. As much as people said that they, we solved racism when, when uh, President Obama took over, that's not the case. It's never been the case. So uh, a lot of this hatred has festered. And, uh, you know, and I'm, there was a time, like all, almost all the last week, every time I went out, I got dirty looks. Now, what saddened me uh, was the dirty looks from other people of color. That's what saddened me. Because, you know, I get it. I, I, white, straight people, I, I get it. You're entitled. You, you think you own this country, whatever. I, I see you looking at me. I, I, that I expect. What I didn't expect is actually the, the, this kind of disgust and the same look of disdain um, that I was getting from white people that I got from brown and black folks. And that's a shame. And, um, you know, the, the, what's difficult with this is that I'm a fairly large Asian guy. So those look of the stains stay that way. They just, they just looks and they rarely turn into any kind of action. But the problem with hatred now is that hatred manifests into some kind of physical activity now. Um, you know, kids getting, two-year-olds are getting stabbed, yeah. babe. Two-year-olds. Now, what kind of a douchebag do you have to be to sit to, to make you get so angry that you're okay with stabbing a two-year-old. I mean, think about what a total asinine, completely devoid of any kind of humanity you have to be to do that. Now, now on, add on top of that, this person who did it at, at BJ's was a, was a Latin Spanish person. Think about that. These are the same people that I've like, you know, stood up for and march with uh, about the camps down in, in, in the border. And, and I know they're not the same, mm-hmm. right? But how does this happen? And, you know, sadly, it's just a reminder that we have such a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's heart-wrenching to hear these stories and how we're turning, you know, the people of color are turning on each other. And do you have any, maybe some encouragements or recommendations? How, how, how is AAPI community can help, I guess? 
Yeah, what's, here's, here's, the, here's yeah. the big thing, right? Um, because, you know, by our face, by our mere name and our face, they know who we are. Uh, and here's the, here's the positive thing out of this is that, that the, the New York Times article that I had my face on in the front of it was being plastered everywhere, including my white friends who are like, hey, this is actually happening. You guys should, you guys just, you know, you got to tone this stuff down. And, and on all, because, you know, I see that when they pick, tag my name, that I see the ping and then I see there's other people's reacting to it. And usually within the first two or three interactions of their post, somebody says fake news. And what has been really positive is that these same people who are my friends, who I know had some racist inclinations, right? Because I grew up with them. I know who they are. Would come out and say, I, no, I know this person. I've known this person for almost 30 years. So this is not fake. And this is actually happening. And it makes people think. You know, they cannot no longer say that, you know, that this is, this is fake news. This is actually happening to somebody yeah. they know. And, and I think what's important is that you have to say it when it happens. You have to vocalize. If you're the silent majority from now on, you are the problem. If you cannot speak about this, you are the problem. Because until you speak up and tell people and share these stories, and no matter how shameful it might feel, until you do that, then you are actually doing a disservice to your friends and, and your community. Because until your friends who are not Asian know that this crap is happening to you, they will also believe that this is fake because they'll look and go, well, Jim didn't post about it or Kim didn't post about it. So of course it's not happening. And you, even if you just say, look, this guy just gave me a dirty look, just post that. Because if you don't, you are playing into every city racist fake news bullshit that's happening out there. And the only way to stop the stupidity is to connect a, something real to something, to, to another person. I'm a real person. My friends are now connecting to that and understanding it's, a re, it's impacting a real person. And once they understood it was connected to a real person, it is now, you know, it's that power of the one-on-one -on -one interaction. It is why I love theater. It's like, you cannot be racist to a person that you know. It's just, it, you know, you don't see lynchings don't happen to people you know lynchings happen to people you don't who who you have othered in such a way that they're no longer a person but if they're a person if they are a distinct person you've interacted with they have to recognize you as a human being and and that's why it's like you know you got to stand up and talk about it. you have to say it you have to post it if you don't and if you know in very many ways if you don't say it, then when it actually hurts someone next, it's your fault. It is actually your fault. So, you know, I, I appreciate about what happened with the New York Times um, is that it got people to talk about it, people that typically don't, who are part of my circle and understand the impact that it's had. Um, you know, so there has been really amazing responses to it. Um, you know, I feel like Things like this are bringing us back to our humanity. It's a slow ride, but we'll get there. Well, there is, um, it is these kinds of situations. And one of the, you know, sometimes crisis is, like you said, uh, does strengthen the, it can tear apart a community, obviously, but it can also strengthen a community as well. Um, as we go back to the basics in terms of 
why we exist as a community and how we need to work together to support each other, to speak out against these, uh, um, you know, these atrocities, right? And, um, and, and the importance of um, how we need, we need to work together and not only sweat equity, but also voice, right? Voice equity yeah. <laughs> as well, to bring awareness yeah. and education uh, and so forth. So um, I, uh, coming to the close of our interview here, and I wanted to end with um, a final question to you, which is um, if, uh, if you could meet your 18 or 19 year old self again, <laughs> what would you advise the 19 year old chill? Uh, I wouldn't change a lot of things, but what I would say to him is meet everything that you deal with, with kindness. I wish I would have had that because there are things that I've said to people in my arrogance and in my, uh, and in my misogynistic really, because, you know, we grew up in an era of, of, you know, uh, movies that weren't really, they were more stark stalker movies than they were romantic movies. We grew up in a strange time. And what I would tell him is all that aside, meet every challenge with kindness. Cause at least you can live with your, everything you've done afterwards. You know, there's, there's no room for anger. You gotta treat everything with kindness. So, you know, at, at, as a hothead, you know, kimchi blooded Korean, <laughs> That's a hard thing to tell a 19 year old, but I would really say like, you know, meet everything with kindness and you'll actually be very happy with what you've done. That's a wonderful way to uh, end our podcast show today. Meet everything with kindness. Well, thank you very much, Jill, for your time, your insight, your stories and your wisdom. And we really do appreciate all you're doing and we just wish you the best of hope and luck and blessings as uh, your, you and your company um, navigate uh, the current crisis and uh, uh, we'll all get through this. And uh, as a community, we need to support each other. And um, so thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Abe. And uh, looking forward to many more CKA events. Great. In the future. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Chill. Plus, I hope it also inspired you to consider supporting your local art communities. It is a tremendously difficult time for performers and artists across the country. Let's help support a community that brings so much inspiration, joy, energy, and creativity to our world. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Korean American Perspectives. As always, we ask that you please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org for interviews, show notes, and more. Also, feel free to send us an email at podcast at councilka.org with any comments or topics you may have. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in next time for the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.